0: May be seated. I would like to turn your attention to Psalm 124 this morning, which is part of these Psalms of Ascents, Psalm 120 through 134. These are psalms that were likely used by pilgrims as they traveled to Jerusalem for one of the three annual festivals each year, and they're like a songbook or a playlist for a road trip that helped to reinforce the basic path of discipleship toward God, this pilgrimage toward God uh, for us as New Testament believers on the way of Jesus Christ and we've been in a series on these for the last several weeks. These psalms uh, help us to understand the basic dimensions of the way of faith and in Psalm 124 we get one of the most central and critical insights of all. This psalm uh, the inside of the psalm is certainly present throughout the entirety of scripture. It was present in last week's psalm, psalm 123. It's present in psalm 121, but it's especially explicit and clear and highlighted here in psalm 124. And this basic insight is that God is on our side. God is for us. If we understand this, if we grasp this, if we live in and lean into this then I suggest that we can actually walk through most anything in life with a sense of assurance and peace. If we don't if we never quite grasp this if we are just wrestling with this and we often do then likely we falter and stumble on the walk of faith quite regularly and I know that's claiming a lot for one thing but I would say that this one insight is at the heart of our faith and so I want to ask you as we begin Our study of the psalm is do you know that God is for you? I don't know what you've gone through this morning. What it was like getting to this place. But do you know that God is for you? That God is on your side? This is what I would call ground zero in the life of faith. And I would say that I could support this claim by going back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve being tempted by the forces of darkness. Because when... The forces of darkness when the devil and his dominion wants to undermine us. This is, the, this is the, the, the lie that's told. Remember what happened in that context. There was this tree that was beautiful to the eyes and pleasing. And it looked like it should be great for this first couple. And so the serpent comes and convinces Eve that God is actually not for you. No, no, he's actually against you. God doesn't want you to flourish. He wants to restrict and restrain you that's what he says that's his lie basically God isn't for you he's against you and so they fall prey to that lie and then they eat from that forbidden tree and I would suggest that our the ongoing temptation for us in the life of faith is constantly being directed at this one basic insight this central insight of what it means to walk by faith this question of is God for you So that's what I want us to keep in mind. What we'll see in this text is the first just the basic insight itself as we're going to look at in verses 1 through 5 and then secondly what this leads to in verses 6 through 8. So let's start with verses 1 through 5 and if you want to open up the Bible with me to Psalm 124 I would encourage you to do that. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us. Then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. You notice the structure of these five verses. There's two if statements. It's a big conditional statement. Two ifs in verses 1 and 2. And then three thens in verses 3, 4, and 5. If you, O Lord, had not been for us or on our side. The basic thought here is then verse 3 we would have been swallowed up alive verse 4 the torrent would have gone over us we, the flood would have swept us away verse 5 similarly over us would have gone the raging waters without you God we would be undone we would have been swept up overrun there was no way without you we didn't stand a chance we don't know exactly what the situation is that is envisioned here is it's not specifically laid out in the psalm with the superscription of David in this psalm many have suggested that we're thinking about the Philistine opposition to David and his reign in the early days of his reign in 2nd Samuel 5 verses 17 through 25 surrounded by the Philistines David inquires of the Lord and the Lord says that he will give them into his hand which he then does And after the battle, David says to the Lord, the Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Some have suggested the context of Sennacherib's invasion of Judah, the Assyrian king, defeating all the fortified cities of Judah and coming to the to the outskirts of Jerusalem and then mocking Israel's God and Hezekiah's dependence upon him. Will your God save you? That night, an angel of the Lord goes out to the the plains where the armies of Assyria are encamped and destroys 185,000 of the soldiers in the camp and they flee. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, we would have been swept away. Others envision the Babylonian exile when the people of God had been run out of the land because of God's uh, holy judgment upon them. And there was a question about whether they would continue to exist at all and God rescues them from exile. We can't be sure exactly about the the specific setting of Psalm 124, but in some ways that's a gift because what this insight is about God being for us and on our side can be applied to all manner of situations which are true to the lives that we lead. The clear conclusion of these first five verses is that left to ourselves we are helpless. Left to ourselves, we cannot face the many threats that we encounter. At the heart of Christian discipleship is this acknowledgement of our inability, of our need and of our finitude, that we desperately depend upon this God who is for us. It's no wonder that when Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He pronounces a blessing upon those who no longer depend upon themselves, who don't see the resources within themselves as that which is going to get them life, but who wait and depend and are aware of their own emptiness as they wait upon the Lord. This is by the way central to the people of God throughout our history. Consider the great story of deliverance in the Old Testament, the Exodus. The people have been rescued by God's miraculous hand out from under the thumb of Pharaoh. But they get to the edge of the wilderness. They, they get out of Egypt. But then they're trapped on the shores of the Red Sea. And what do they see? They see the superpower of the world. Pharaoh and his army approaching them rapidly. They see the dust clouds stirring up. And they think we're done. There's no way. We're not a military people. And they're coming at them with horses and chariots. And we know that story. The Lord fights for them. He says you just be still. And I'll fight for you. And the Lord opens the sea, allows them to pass through, and then causes the sea to come in upon Pharaoh and his army. And Exodus 15 is the celebration song of that great victory. Or consider another story that you've all been exposed to, certainly that we heard about throughout our Sunday school days, if you grew up in the church, of the Israel uh, army being mocked by the Philistines. Mocked by this giant named Goliath. And afraid and scared. Day in and day out. This confrontation in which they and their God were mocked. Until this shepherd boy shows up. David. And goes out to meet the giant. The giant sees him and mocks again. And says am I a dog that you come at me with sticks. But David says with great faith. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. The God of armies of Israel. Whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And of course he does and you can hear the people of God say if it had not been the Lord who was on our side then we would have been swallowed up alive. Or another great story Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in a foreign land under a foreign power being forced and told that they must bow down to worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar had made. And they say to him, no, we won't. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from this burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And you know the story of the fourth man appearing in the furnace with them. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, then we would have been burned up. This is our story, by the way. These aren't just ancient stories that you heard about in Sunday school, though they are indeed. They are our story. We are part of this people with this God in this covenant relationship with him who says, I am for you, I am on your side, and I will rescue you and deliver you. We are here only here because of God's gracious intervention in our lives. If God had not intervened, then like these stories of old, we too would be swallowed up alive. But he helps and he intervenes. Now you might ask, well, where has God done this in my life? I don't know what all of you are walking through this morning. But I'm quite confident that for many of you, it's difficult and challenging. And you might wonder, well, how does a psalm celebrate the Lord being on our side when I'm walking through this? And I want to say that is a fair question. I'll come back to it in a little while. But let me just say that for those of us who know Jesus and who have life in him, that all that is being celebrated throughout the Old Testament and in Psalm 124 about the deliverance of God, about God being on our side, it's just a foretaste really. It's just a glimpse of what we get to see in full radiant glory at the cross of Jesus Christ. That God would enter into the world in the person of the Son and take upon himself the burdens and pain of sin itself and undo and defeat the powers of darkness that diminish human life. So that we actually guilty sinners might be Freshly cleansed and forgiven, washed and made clean, liberated and set free, and know the genuine fullness of life with God a life that will never end our situation that is to say in sin was more helpless than Shadrach Meshach and Abednego's it was more helpless than David's it was more helpless than Israel's on the shores of the Red Sea it was deeply helpless Athanasius one of the early church fathers in the fourth century said that this was a situation that we humanity were in from which there was no escape And he says that we would have without the Lord and Savior of all coming among us perished utterly. Calvin, the great reformer, called the situation hopeless, had the very majesty of God not descended to us. So we of all people can come to Psalm 124 and say, if the Lord had not been on our side, let the church now say, if the Lord had not been on our side, we would have been swallowed up alive. The waters would have rushed over us. The waters of sin and evil and death and yet God has intervened. God has made a way where there was no way. He is in fact on our side and we we are alive and we will live with him forever even though as Jesus says in John 11 even though we die. This is at the nucleus of our faith this basic insight of the first five verses of Psalm 124. Look the threats were too great the opposition was too strong But God intervened and made a way. And this is our story, and this is our song. God is on our side. God is for you. Do you believe that? Now, this leads to a couple of things in particular if we look at the second half of the psalm. In the first section here, verses six and seven, the psalmist continues Blessed be the Lord who has not given us his prey to their teeth. We've escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. I simply want to focus on that first phrase. Blessed be the Lord. The deliverance of God leads to a life of praise. Blessed be the Lord. Whatever it is that we're going, that's going on in life. Whatever particular trials and circumstances that we're in today. The fact of the matter is, is that the basic reality of our lives in the Christian faith. Is that we have been delivered by God as we read about in Colossians 1 from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. We have been rescued from a situation of no hope where we were dead in our trespasses and sins but God because he loved us because he's rich in mercy has made us alive together with Christ and what that leads to then this basic insight is praise. Think about Paul and Silas on their missionary journey. They get to Philippi. They're sharing the gospel. They get beaten up and thrown into prison. Now, if you or I were in that situation, my guess is our first response would be to wallow in self-pity and to go, God, where are you? What's going on? I thought I was out here serving you, risking my life for you. And now I'm in prison and very sore, to say, to say the least, and shackled. And what do we find them doing at midnight in the, in the Philippian jail cell? They're praising. They're singing hymns to God. One of the things I love about that story is that that's what leads the Philippian jailer to faith. When the people of God take up the cry of Psalm 124 and praise him blessed be the Lord in any and all of our circumstances because of his great deliverance which of course the greatest deliverance is what we know about from the cross that is unambiguous and clear. When we begin to praise God in any and all circumstances out of that you know what happens people see it and they go look that's something that I need to know about. That's something I want more and I want to know what that is that's in you that enables you to live in that way. So the first thing that this produces, this basic insight of Psalm 124 is a life of praise. And I would ask you and I wonder if it's fair to say that that a life of praise is a measure of the degree to which we have grasped this basic truth. That God is on our side. It flows out in praise. And then the second thing that the fruit of this is verse 8, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And I call this a confession of faith. If we have praise, then we have this deep confession of faith. Our help is in the name of the Lord, that's in the person and presence of the Lord himself who made heaven and earth. He's not just a tribal deity, he is the creator God of the world. He made everything that we see, the beautiful trees on the common, he made those for our delight and enjoyment. This is the one who is our help. And this is their confession of faith here of the people of God. Yes, there's a song of praise and blessing on our lips. But there is this confession of faith. And and I want to suggest that this confession of faith leads to a number of things. and I'll just point out three. To humility, to obedience, and to a diminishment of fear. On humility, this confession of faith. Because God is our help, we know that we're not our own help. But we trust in him and we honor him in all situations. Uh, I love track and field. My kids and I were watching some of the US Olympic trials last weekend uh, in track and field. And after each race, the NBC reporter would interview the top three finishers because they had qualified to go to Tokyo later to represent our nation in the Olympics. And after the men's 100 meter final, of course the reporter interviews the, the top three finishers and he starts with the first place finisher and he says, You've been number one in the world all year long. How did you hold on to that day and punch your ticket to the Tokyo Games? In the first place, the winner, the runner, just said this. It was amazing. He took off his number, flipped it around, and it said, it was written on the backside of his number, God is real. And he just said, God is real, that's all I have to say. <laughs> and uh, the reporter was like, That's it, really? I was like, Yep, yeah, that's all I have to say. God is real. And then he turns to the second place finisher and he says look how big is this moment for you? You've been through all these injuries over the last five years and you finally qualified for your first world team to represent the United States and he says his answer is is great. He says well look it means a lot because of all that I've been through but I'm on the same wavelength that Trey is on and that was the first place finisher's name and he then said it would not be possible without God. And then he went on to talk about there's a place where you are and a place where you want to be and it's only God who can fill that gap in your life and my kids and I were like this is better than church we're getting a great (laughs) message here because of all that's going on so then the reporter kind of uncomfortably turns to the third guy and he says to him he says how did you manage this final to get to the top three and this is where there was just a giant contrast because he gave the typical answer He said, first of all, and this is actually the only thing he said, so I'm not sure why he said first of all. First of all, I believe in myself to get to this point where I am right now. Such a contrast. The first two runners illustrate for us the heart of humility that comes out of the confession of faith. Our help is in the name of the Lord. These guys, you know, they worked their tails off. They've been disciplined. They've done everything that they could do. But when the moment came to give glory, who did they give glory to? God, who is their help? So this confession of faith leads to a genuine humility. But it also leads to a greater obedience. Because believing that God is our help encourages us in the day-to-day to trust and obey God more and more. Because it's this, if you remember, that was lacking. It's this that was attacked in the Garden of Eden. God isn't for you. He's against you. He's trying to restrict you. So what happens when that that deep truth of God being for you gets undermined? What do they do? They step out of his will. They eat the forbidden fruit. They go outside of what God has designed for them. In a similar fashion, we might remember the great story of the people of God wandering through the wilderness to the promised land. And they get there in Numbers 13 and 14, and and they send out the spies, the 12 spies, to go into the land. They come back, and 10 of the spies bring this report. You remember? The land is great, flowing with milk and honey. The grapes are giant clusters, but so are the people. They're giants, and their cities are fortified. We must not go up into the land. We appear as grasshoppers to them. They would forgotten that God was for them. Well, the other two spies whose names you might know are Caleb and Joshua. They come before the people of God, upset at the report of the majority. They're the small minority. And they say, do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Obey, they say. Let's obey because God is on our side. So let's walk in the path that he set out before us. And trust him. This conviction leads to this life of praise and this confession of faith. The confession of faith leads to humility. It leads to a trusting obedience in greater ways. And the third thing that it leads to is a diminishment of fear. Whilst watching these track and field things, there's a Capital One banking commercial that's out there right now in which the spokesman in the commercial basically says, we have all these great features for our bank. So this is basically the easiest decision in the history of decisions to choose our bank. And then he says, kind of like, and then the camera switches, the screen switches. And in this particular instance, it switches to a basketball court with 10 year olds playing basketball and a girl and a boy captain choosing their teams. And among the kids that they're choosing, there stands one giant above the rest and it's Charles Barkley, the former NBA star. And she goes, I choose Barkley. And that's, of course, like the easiest decision that you could ever make. But let's just run with that example for a minute and ask the question if they had kept the commercial going, which they don't, and showed this little girl and her team getting on the court with the other team, with Charles Barkley on their team. I don't think there would have been much fear in their team as they faced their opponent. And in many ways, that's our situation. Only we did not choose God. And this is profound about the message of grace throughout the biblical witness. But God chose you and me and called us to be on his team that he might be on our side and we get to enter into life whatever it throws at us with the assurance that he's on our team he's on our side it's a great line in Psalm 118 about this the Lord is on my side I will not fear And you all probably know Psalm 23 that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God is on our side, God is for us. Do you believe that this morning? And does that belief lead then to this life of praise in any and all circumstances? and to this deep confession of faith that produces humility, obedience, and diminishes fear. I'm not saying that none of us are afraid. I get afraid. We all get afraid, but it diminishes our fear as we begin to lean into the reality that God is on our side. I want to pivot a little bit as we come toward an end and and think about the reality of the world in which we live because I'm sure many of you are here thinking this sounds great you know I I love the biblical word and I love when it's proclaimed with conviction and but look at my life why are we afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair persecuted but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed. That's the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 in a passage in which he's encouraging the church not to lose heart. And he says look my own life is full of despair, full of challenges, full of suffering in very real ways but don't lose heart. We hold this tre- treasure in jars of clay to show that su- the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us he says. You might be here this morning saying why is it that I have cancer or why is it that my children seem to be walking away from God and not toward him despite what I've taught them all their lives or why is it that my marriage is suffering in the way that it is or why am I so lonely these are fair and legitimate questions they're hard questions and I I raise them because I think it's important for us to hear the affirmation of Psalm 124 in the context of reality and I want to say this let's remember that Psalm 124's declaration about God being our help is in the Psalter these 150 songs that have been given to us by God's providence and mercy that give us language to deal with the great challenges of life in this world So the Psalter as a whole doesn't turn a blind eye to the difficult circumstances and situations of life. But this psalm is not focused so much on the hazards and the difficulties but rather on the help that God provides in the midst of them for his people. That is what defines the declaration of this psalm. So you might say well why then Lord? Why these trials? And I want to tread carefully here because I know that these trials and disappointments and difficulties and hardships in our lives are the very ammunition that the enemy uses to undermine your conviction that God is for you, that God is on your side. He uses these things with accusations all the time to say, actually, God is not for you. And if he were for you, you wouldn't be going through this. So just throw in the towel. You've heard that voice. I know you have. I remember during our first year of marriage when Mandy and I were living in a small town in Colorado, we were using some of our extra time to minister to the working poor in our community. And this dear woman, broken woman, got into a conversation with my wife and she just cried out, where was God when this was happening to me? And in between the lines of that question, and she's not alone in asking it, is this reality that if God was for me, Then why this in my life and I know some of you probably have that same question. And again here we arrive at the edges of our understanding. The edges of the mystery of God's great transcendence and providence. Yet these are edges that we can yield. Faithfully to the wonderful doctrine of divine providence in which we trust in a sovereign God. His sovereign governance and preservation of this world and of your life and of mine. And in the fact that this God is declared unambiguously to be fully and perfectly good. And he's also declared by the Apostle Paul himself, who's gone through great trials. Read 2 Corinthians 11 if you want to see the catalog of all that he suffered and experienced as he was serving the Lord. Paul can write and say, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. We know, he says, we know this, that this is what God is doing. There has never been a context without suffering in which the life of faith is to be lived. Never. Think back to the very beginning. In that first family, one son killed another son. And in that context, faith was exercised. By their parents, I'm sure. Even to some degree by Cain after he killed his brother. No, the context in which we live is always a context of suffering and trial. And it's in that context that we join with Jesus, the Son of God. We join with the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, the great leaders of the church in this context of trial and suffering. And we declare our faith in a God who can work in the midst of our suffering for our good. Yes, there is mystery here, but it is deeply the conviction of the biblical texts that this is true. The sovereign king is over our lives in any and all circumstances, and he is for us. So in this passage that I've quoted in this sermon series already from Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things Paul's argument is from the greater to the lesser look what God has already given to you he's given you his son he set you free from sin and evil and death he's put you and planted your feet on solid resurrection ground he's given you a purpose and a hope and a future he's poured out his spirit into you how will he not also he's done all of those things how will he not give you everything else that you need not necessarily circumstances that are what you would prefer but the strength and the resources of himself to see you through those circumstances in a way that brings glory and honor to him that enables you to praise him in a cell at midnight beaten and sore that enables you to forgive the one who perpetrated such awful things against you so that you would no longer be defined by those things that have been done to you by someone else but you are defined by what God has done for you And in that definition, as a child of God, forgiven and free, you're able to offer, yes, an incredibly humanly difficult word of forgiveness, but one in the power of his spirit that enables you to forgive and no longer be controlled by what has been done or defined. Because you are defined as a child of the living God who has given his son for you. How will he not along with him graciously give you all things? That is the promise in the midst of our trials that God will never not be for us again. That he will always be on our side and that he will carry us through whatever it is that we're walking through and that he will restore us fully certainly on that day when jesus returns to make all things well i think it's helpful to look back at saints that have walked before us when we come these deep waters in light of this conviction that's portrayed in Psalm 124 and the reality of the circumstances that we live through. I I was struck when I was reading the the biography of Jonathan Edwards many years ago by his wife's testimony after his premature death. He died in the spring of 1758 and she lost her husband and her son-in-law that spring. She had just sent Jonathan down to Princeton to become the president of what would become the institution we know as Princeton. And he had tried a treatment for smallpox that didn't go quite right. There were complications and he passed away. So she writes this to comfort her bereaved daughter, Esther, who had lost her husband only six months earlier as well, after only five years of marriage, leaving her with two young children. Oh, my very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod of reproof and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband, your father, has left us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be. There I am and love to be. This was a woman who knew that God was on her side. And in her moment of bereavement had put her faith there, trusting in his loving care and providence and sought to encourage her grieving daughter with her, what I might say, giant faith. We don't fully understand God's ways when we walk through this life. But one thing that we can fully understand, God is for us and God is on our side. I wanna close with a final example from one of the great hymn writers of the 18th century, William Cooper. He was a friend of John Newton's who wrote Amazing Grace. They wrote a, published a book of hymns together and most who study these things think that Cooper had the better endowment with his pen. He was an incredible poet. The reason I think this poem is so powerful is because of Cooper's own story. He struggled with depression, and mental illness all his life. He had been institutionalized two or three times. He tried to commit suicide and God had preserved him through all of this. And he wrote these words that some of you will know. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy. And shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, faith sees a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. There may be things that we cannot interpret rightly in our lives right now. There were many in Cooper's own life. But what confidence to say that God would make it plain. And what confidence, why could he write those words having suffered the way he had, having gone through trials the way he had? It was because what God had already made plain. In the cross and resurrection of his son. Which are like these brilliant sunbeams shining through the clouds. That declare once and for all without any, ever, any possibility of ever being revoked. That God is for us. God is on our side. Who can be against us? Do you believe that this morning? This is the nucleus of our faith to be exercised in a world of trial, with lips of praise, with humility, obedience, and being unafraid. This is our great calling as the children of God. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word, which speaks to our unbelief, Lord we do believe help our unbelief and we I pray specifically this morning for any who are listening who for whom this is a dark day for whom the question of your goodness and your being for them is so deeply being considered right now I pray that you by your spirit would communicate your love and care through the radiance of the cross oh God you love us more now than ever you could It cannot be greater. You cannot be any more for us than you are. And for that, Lord, we praise you. We adore you. We thank you. You are our help. The one who made heaven and earth. Be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.